If you look at your bulletin outline, we're looking at the religious conspiracy. Again, think of these things as being all empowered by the evil one. The first thing I want to talk about is the intertestament, intertestament changes that took place from the, beginning, from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New. The book of Malachi is the last Old Testament book which comprises the revelation of God through his prophets from Moses to Malachi. Then all revelation from God ceased for a period of 400 years. In those four centuries, a lot happened to the Jewish people. Israel had gone through and experienced captivity, firstly in the ten northern tribes by Assyria, later Judah and Benjamin, the two southern tribes by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. They lived out their servitude and under Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian, the Israelites were permitted to start returning and rebuilding their homeland. Alexander the Great came to power and he defeated the Persian Empire and established Greek rule and culture. And it was at this time that the Aramaic language began to replace Hebrew as the speech of most of the Jews. And so we have some of the books in the Old Testament uh, or in some of the phraseology in the New Testament written in Aramaic. After Alexander's death, Ptolemy of Egypt became the ruling monarch over Palestine. The entire Old Testament was translated into Greek during this period of time. This is known as the Septuagint, uh, a Latin phrase meaning the 70, and it was so named for the 70 translators who worked on it. This Greek Bible became the Bible for all Jews and all Christians during this Greek culture. And by the way, we have, uh, you can buy copies of the Septuagint translations. Um, and, and therefore, you can use your Strong's Greek, Hebrew uh, concordances and so forth to find out what words mean. Then the Syrian rebel uh, Antiochus came to power. So he successfully captured Palestine and desecrated the temple by sacrificing pigs on the altar which he dedicated to Zeus. Because he's total pagan here, takes over uh, Jerusalem and the temple. War broke out with loyal Jewish families, chief among them the Maccabean family. The Maccabean family had seven brothers, and these wars, just you know, from brother to brother, they carried on the fight. This began the Jewish wars of which Josephus in his history writes. Exactly three years after Antiochus had desecrated the temple, the Jews regained control of the temple mount and restored the worship of God. The celebration, Jewish celebration of Hanukkah celebrates this recapture and this reestablishment of Jewish rule in Palestine. Now, during this period of time, competition between state-appointed, listen to this, state-appointed high priests and priests of the Levitical line continued. So they had this kind of rivalry. Guy come to power, he, secular, secular person, would appoint a high priest 
to rule in public affairs. Because of the political corruption of the priesthood by the civil authorities, the Hasidian family, devout Jews loyal to the Mosaic law, abandoned Jerusalem and the temple that they called incurably corrupt. Yeah, because you had politicians appointing the spiritual, put that in quotes, spiritual leaders. So they abandoned the uh, temple area and they established, uh, they established their own communal monastery in the Qumran region of the Dead Seas. These people later became known as the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S, and they made it their life's work to copy the Old Testament scriptures, and they became known as the scribes. The Essenes were the scribes. You probably all heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in the mid-1940s. These were portions of the Old Testament that the Essenes had hand-copied out. And some of our greatest verifications of the Old Testament scriptures come from this Qumran uh, facility. One of my professors at Westminster, Dr. Edward Young, actually worked on translating the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, back in the 1940s. Another faction of the Hasidians who were more interested in teaching the law than operating the priesthood, reconciled, get this, with the civil appointed high priests, and they became known as the Pharisees. So they made a deal. They cut a deal. Okay, we'll let the civil authority appoint the high priest. We're not interested in that part of ministry at all. We're interested in other things. An aristocratic sect known as the Sadducees became competitors of the Pharisees primarily in their secularization of the Jewish faith. Pharisees, conservatives, Sadducees, liberals. Just, just, just to make a wide sweeping definition. Well, Rome crushed the final Jewish rebellion at Masada. I'm sure you've all heard of that the mountain plateau built by Herod the Great. The Jewish refugees took their own lives rather than become prisoners of Rome. Now the major changes to the Jewish religion during these four centuries was, as noted, the formulation of three major sects or branches of Judaism and one short-lived uh, group that I didn't mention, and that was known, they were known as the Zealots. The Zealots. So let's talk about them. The Pharisees, who were they? Well, if we had to uh, label them, we would call them the Orthodox of the group, which is pretty astounding when you think about some of the things they did, but nonetheless, they were the Orthodox. They accepted the inspiration of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They also uh, accepted the Oral traditions, the things that were passed down orally. They accepted the sovereignty of God and believed that God was sovereign in the affairs of men. Sounds like us. They believed in the hierarchy of angels and demons. They believed in resurrection. They believed in a future life. They believed in the immortality of the soul. This is all good, right? 
This is orthodox stuff. And it didn't matter whether they believed in heaven or hell, they believed in both. They were champions of human equality. Teaching, their teaching was on ethics, however, not on theology. So they were all into how do you behave and all of this and that. Uh, would to God that they had uh, taken a bit of their own counsel uh, on that. Who were the Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees were the direct opposite in a lot of these areas. They denied that the oral law was authoritative and binding. Good point for them. They took a literal rendition of the law. That's good. They were sticklers for Levitical purity. But they attributed all decisions made to free will. No sovereignty of God. They argued against the resurrection. They argued against future life. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in demons. They believed that there was no spiritual world at all. And that only the books of Moses were to be viewed as scripture. Everything else, not so. So that puts them in the liberal category, although they had a couple good points there. Third group is the Essenes, talked about in the New Testament scriptures as the scribes. They were strict sects which sided with the Maccabean brothers in the revolt against Syria. They were strict observers of the purity laws of the Torah. They promoted promoted communal ownership of property, not personal. You couldn't say, this is my car, this is my horse, this is my wagon. They believed in communal ownership. They had a strong sense of mutual responsibility, so you can kind of see that. They believed in daily worship, daily study of the scriptures with stress. Naturally, they're the scribes, so they're working with the texts all the time. They believed in taking solemn of obedience and solemn of piety. The sacrifices were offered on holy days and in holy seasons. Marriage was not condemned, but it was avoided. Everything that happens to persons, to people, is pure faith. So that's really odd, that they believed in all these other things, but then they believe that everything that comes our way is just faith. Now the zealots were the fourth group. Uh, They lasted as a group now, as a group, as an organization, just during the reign of Herod the Great. And that's what, you know, they died at Masada as a group. They refused to pay taxes to Caesar. They claimed that allegiance was due only to God. There was fierce loyalty to Jewish traditions. They opposed using the Greek language in Palestine. Sounds like some Canadians that only speak French. Uh, They believed in and prophesied the coming of the time of salvation. And it was the zealots who holed up in Masada and came to an end as a group in A.D. 73 when the Roman general Silva built a siege ramp and stormed the fortress. And as I said, they took their own lives rather than be captured by Rome. Now, by the time John the Baptist and Jesus come on the scene in the New Testament era, these remaining, at least the three major Jewish sects, were well established, well established, four centuries, you see, And they soon became antagonists towards Christ and the gospel as they dug in to promote their own traditions and their own religious viewpoints, often denying the principles of their own religion. So 
that they could gain the supremacy over the religious conscience of the day. They fought among themselves, you see. And, and when Jesus got in the way, they fought him too. The Pharisees became the focal point of Jesus' contention, but the scribes, the Essenes, and the Sadducees cannot be ignored either. The Zealots were extinguished as a group at Masada, but you still find remnants of them here and there in Jesus' ministry. That brings us in our bulletin outline to the Pharisaical piety. The first mention of the Pharisees is found in Matthew 3, verse 7, where John the Baptist was preaching a gospel of repentance to all the people as they came to the Jordan to confess their sins and be baptized. A revival was in process. Matthew tells us people went out to him, John, from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Matthew 3, verse 5. Some of this may have been just plain idle curiosity because John was not the fluff and stuff kind of preachers that we often see today. No, his clothes, and I'm reading scripture, were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey, Matthew 3, verse 4. I cannot imagine what it was like wearing a camel's hair garment. It's not the soft, fuzzy threads that are part of our wardrobes, but it was coarse and rough. And on top of that, he ate bugs. Yeah, and wild honey, it says. Well, if it's wild honey, can you see him dipping from uh, the beehives found in the desert? What was that like? How'd he fight off uh, the drones and the worker bees and all of that kind of stuff? Well, this was John. His message was not fluff and stuff either. Look at Matthew 3, verse 1. It says... Here's his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That was his message. So when the Pharisees and Sadducees showed up at the the Jordan River where John was baptizing, what a shocker to their ears it must have been when John said, You brood of vipers. (laughs) How would you like to be greeted like that? You brood of vipers. Who warn you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourself, Well, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of the stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew 3, verse 7 through 10. You vipers. You vipers. It's a term used in scripture of the viper, the snake, Satan. I think it's fair to say that John knew a great deal about the Pharisees and the Sadducees before they ever showed up at the river bank at Jordan. Their reputation had preceded them, and it was not a good and honorable reputation, as we shall soon discover. Paul gives us this principle. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. 1 Timothy 5, verse 24 and 25. 
Now we can tell by the Baptist use of the word vipers to describe the Pharisees and Sadducees who showed up at the Jordan that their sins were well known by him and likely by the general public as well. It's wise to keep in mind that being Christian, listen to me now, being Christian and being religious are not interchangeable terms. Many people are religious, even in our day, but they are not Christian in doctrine, they are not Christian in behavior. Their ethics may be little more than a humanized morality determined by their own thought processes. They think they know God because they talk about God. They think they're saved because they are engaged in what is called religious activity. Attending church, contributing to the church financially, showing up at work parties to help improve the building of the church, donating to mission projects, donating to the aid of the poor. We're Christians. We're doing these things. The deception here is that all these things that I just mentioned are, in fact, part and parcel to the Christian life. But these things are secondary to knowing God and striving to become like his beloved son, Jesus. We were talking about that in the adult class this morning. People of the world, people of the world are often characterized by philanthropic enterprises, which in themselves are noble deeds. But the difference, the hard pill to swallow, is that for unbelievers, they do these things thinking that this is how one pleases God, this is how one is justified, this is how one is forgiven of sins and earn salvation. Whereas, whereas, a genuine Christian is engaged in these things out of having been forgiven by God, having received His grace, and now strive to mimic Christ's mercy and love to the lost and dying. There's the difference. And it's a, you know, the, the two positions are poles apart. One is trying to earn salvation through good works. The Christian is expressing thanks and appreciation for what God has done for him through the merit of his son, Jesus. Jesus spoke of this distinction this way. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. See, sinners can love. Okay, that's what he's saying. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners, people of the world, can do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Here's what he says. I want you to love your enemies. 
and do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then your reward will be great because you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind, God, He is kind to ungrateful and to the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. All of that taken from Luke 6, verse 31 through 36. The different brand of morality and different brand of ethics comes from the Christian, as we, one would expect, because of Christ. What can be said of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes or the Essenes of Jesus' day is that all of these people were very religious. But as noted, religion is often put for being Christian, but there was nothing Christian about them. There was nothing of being God-fearing about them. They were like the civil appointed high priests that I read about in the Intertestament period. It was their job, can I put it that way? Their job to be religious leaders. They were paid to perform a service for the religious hierarchy of the day. Nothing of moral integrity established, uh, was established by them. They were not required to restrain their avarice, their deception of the people. They were supposed to represent or their hatred for Jesus, the true Messiah and the true Son of God, all the while believing that they sat well with God. You know, this was about in the 18th century as well, 19th century. You know, pastors were became paid patron. They had a patron that paid their support. It wasn't congregational. It wasn't the church supporting the man. They had some rich patron in the community, and he just hired somebody. Would you like to be the pastor of this church over here? I'm going to build this uh, church, uh, and I would like you to be. Would you like to be the pastor? I'll pay you a so, such and such a salary. Jane Austen writes about this in her novels. If any of you are Jane Austen fans, well, that was true. That's the way they did things, and it wasn't congregational. It didn't come from the people. It came from some guy that had money. And he literally bought the pulpit. And that's what was going on in the day of the Pharisees. I want you to remember that Paul was a Pharisee before his conversion. In his own testimony before the authorities at his trial, he says, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That means a professor, a professor of religious studies. The Jews all know the way I lived ever since I was a child from the beginnings of my life to, in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that according to the strictest sects of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Acts 26, verse 4 and 5. That was his background. Very religious, very devout. He's not pretending. But he goes on to say, however, I too was convinced 
that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Acts 26, verse 9 and 10. Here's a Pharisee in operation. Brethren, a person can be very religious and hate God's Son. A person can be very devout in one's faith and blaspheme and hunt down and persecute the Christian community. Being religious and being Christian are not synonyms. Paul, the former Pharisee, illustrates this. And he is not alone in this. His Pharisaical descendants are alive and well in our day, in our society. Would to God they would follow Paul's road to conversion. That they would repent of their sin. That they would surrender their religious pride. To persecute the people of God that he loves is not an occasion for pride. It's an occasion for the judgment of God. Yet we see this escalating in our own country almost every day. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not Enter the kingdom of heaven. Think there's a difference between being a Christian and religious? Matthew 5, verse 20. Okay, what righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees? Paul, speaking of himself, says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that is, obedience to the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3, verses 9 through 11. I could put it this way. Putrid and paltry are all men's Righteous deeds compared with those of Jesus. Isaiah told it true when he said it this way. All of us have become like one who is unclean, like a leper. And all our, get this now, all our righteous acts, all our good deeds, if you please, are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Isaiah 64, verse 6. This is why people need a Savior, can I say it this way, outside of their own religiosity. They need one whom the writer of Hebrews describes. Such a high priest meets our need, speaking of Jesus, one who is holy and blameless and pure and set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He has sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. 
Hebrews 7, verse 26 and 27. No personal sins for which he needed to sacrifice, but for the sins of his people, he offered himself. Now that brings us then to the second point in the outline in your bulletin, bones of contention between Jesus and the religious elite of his day. What did they have against this Jesus from Nazareth? What was their gripe, if we would put it in the vernacular? Well, number one, Jesus was accused of not abiding by the law of God. Uh, And I might say here, their view of the law of God. Let me read it. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and his disciples began to pick some ears of corn, rub them in their hands, and eat the grain. And some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? See that? That sounded like work to them. Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? Now he's going to quote from the Old Testament here. He, David, entered the house of God, think of this, and taking the consecrated bread, the showbread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You want to talk about Sabbath regulations? You're looking at the Lord of the Sabbath regulations. On another Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was all shriveled up. I'm reading scripture. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse him. See, this is this conspiracy starting to build. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up, stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? See, it's the question here again. What's lawful, what's not? Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was completely restored. Now listen to the next verse. But they were furious. And they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Luke 6, the first 11 verses. You see what their problem is? Their understanding of all, their interpretation of all, their little spins... Raleigh talks about the no spin zone. The Pharisees had a lot of spin zones. They gave spins to the scripture. And the idea of no work on the Sabbath say, well, that means no healing. No preparing a meal on the Sabbath to eat, even if it's just corn that you found in the fields. 
On another occasion, Mark writes, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. Now, that has nothing to do with hygiene. This isn't wash your hands before it's time for supper, kids. Go wash your hands. It's not that. It's ceremonial. It's the religious. Holding to the tradition of the elders. This is why they did that. You know, before you eat, you have to go through this kind of spiritual, ceremonial washing. Then you can eat. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other, I'm reading scripture, many other traditions such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Ceremonially unclean. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. See those traditions. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Mark 7, 1 through 9. What is tradition? Tradition is, this is the way we do it. That's tradition. This is the way we do it. Ta-da, ta-da, ta-da. And the Pharisees were all into their traditional interpretations of the law. Don't work on the Sabbath. That was, yes, that's God's word. Well, that means that, you know, you have to have a ceremonial washing before you eat food. You can't gather food or prepare food on the Sabbath. Uh, You can't heal on the Sabbath. You can't do good works on the Sabbath. So, Their first bone of contention, their first locking of horns with Jesus is over this fact, they they thought it a fact, that he was doing things that were unlawful. Unlawful. The law doesn't require, and your disciples and you are doing those things. Second bone of contention. Jesus was denigrated for associating with the lowlives, sinners of the day. We read, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners... You hear that word used by Matthew? He's talking about the lowlifes, the drunkards, the prostitutes, the thieves, the extortionists. We would call them riff-raff of society, right? Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. 
When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not to come to call the righteous, that is the self-righteous, but sinners. Matthew 9, 9 through 13. If you know your heart this morning, I said your heart. If you know your heart this morning and you're a saved person, you know that you're one of the low lowlifes that God has found and brought into his family by his grace. Jesus is always searching for the low lowlifes, not the self-righteous. Jesus put his finger on the real issue in Luke 7, verse 31 and following. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children. This is Jesus speaking. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, Hey, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't cry. For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus named for himself, came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What's he saying? He's saying, we can't please you either way. John was more austere than me in his lifestyle. And you said he had a demon. I come along and I eat regular food and drink wine, and you call me a glutton, and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But, says Jesus, wisdom is proved right by all her children. What's that mean? Look at the outcomes before you make a judgment. Look at the children my message is producing before you judge me. You might also want to see Luke 7, verse 28 which explains that John's ministry pointed to the Messiah and Jesus' ministry was that of forgiving and saving and changing the lives of all those who came to him regardless of their sordid past life. Do you know that the Pharisees knew little about mercy, forgiveness, kindness, redemption? So when he associated with the lowlifes, they couldn't handle that. Thirdly, third bone of contention. Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of blasphemy because he claimed to be God. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat, and they tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. And when they could not find a way to do this because of the great crowd, 
they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, he's talking to the guy on the mat, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Luke 5, verse 17 through 21. So a bone of contention here is they look upon Jesus as a blasphemer. Now, they were quite accurate in saying, who can forgive sins but God? That's true. The priests of Roman Catholicism blaspheme every time they claim to absolve someone of their sins in the confessional box. Only God can forgive sins. The Pharisees were correct in this. Where they erred, however, was in their assumption that Jesus was not the Son of God. Their error was unconscionable in light of the truth of what Jesus said to them in John 10, verse 24 and following. The Jews gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you're not one of my sheep. John 10. 24 through 26. What's that? Well, here we got the paralytic on the mat. He's lowered down through the roof and he's healed. It's a testimony to Jesus' deity. Back to John 10. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him after Jesus made that statement. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They got it, didn't they? Have you heard people in our day say, nowhere in the Bible did Jesus ever claim to be God? That was something his disciples said about him? Well, here's the text, it's John 10. Jesus answered them, it is, not, is it not written in your law? I have said that you are gods. If he called them gods, little g, and to which the, the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Brethren, could it be any more clear than that? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And again they tried to seize him and he escaped their grasp. John 10 verses 31 through 39. The plot is getting worse conspiracy. These guys are getting hot under the collar here. They believe that Jesus is a blasphemer because he claimed to be the Son of God. And then number four, Jesus was hated because of his popularity with the people. At his trial before Pilate, the governor asked the people, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, referring to Jesus? 
knowing, here's the governor, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Mark 15, verses 9 through 11. Out of envy, they delivered Jesus over to Pilate. In John 4, verse 1, it says, The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. They heard, oh, this guy's getting popular. John 7, verse 28 and following. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple, courts cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. And this, at this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid hands on him, because his time had not yet come. Still, listen to this now. Many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. John seven twenty-eight through verse 32. Yeah, they were jealous. They were jealous. You remember that the disciples of John the Baptist had a problem with Jesus' popularity as well until John himself corrected them. They came to John and they said, Rabbi, you know that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. John 3, verses 26 through 30. These bones of contention between the religious leaders and Jesus made Jesus the target of a conspiracy of betrayal and murder. And there were other things too, but at least these four main things that we've looked at. I wonder, would we have done any better? Do we not have our traditional ways of doing things which we do not even want God to disturb? You know, we've mapped it out this way, Lord. This is the way we do things. Or again, do we associate with the low lives of our culture? To give them the gospel? James has a whole lot to say about that in his epistle. He talks about, what if a rich man comes in and you say, oh, I have this one wonderful seat up here up front where you can see everything. But then someone comes in that's not so wealthy and you say, oh, go go take that back pew. Sit in the corner over there. Shut up, sit down, be quiet. James talks about these things. 
Do we have trouble with believing in Jesus' deity? Do not his miracles prove his claims? And what about our pride getting in the way of coming to Jesus for salvation? Pride was the original sin in Satan. It still goes on. Man is always puffing up and saying how good he is and what he can do. Our educational system says you can do it. Just believe in yourself. Do we ourselves see ourselves in need of saving? We may be no better in our analysis of Jesus than the religious leaders of his day and for the same sinful reasons. Jesus put it this way to a group in Luke 13, verse 3, I tell you the truth, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He's telling the truth. And sometimes the truth hurts. And when it hurts us, we recoil. Who does he think he is talking to me like that? He thinks he's the Son of God. And you will all, me included, one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account. These Pharisees too, and these Sadducees too. May God grant you repentance and faith. Our Lord, we thank you for your word today. And in the next uh, service, we celebrate your death, burial, and resurrection, remembering that we weren't so great. We weren't so good. No, we needed an external holy person, the only holy one there is, is God, to die for our sins, to step in and take our guilt upon himself so that we could be cleansed and set free. We weren't good at all. The only thing we were good at is sin. We were good at our pride. We were good at our arrogance. We were were good at our unbelief. We were good at self-righteousness. And we're not very good at believing God's analysis. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory that's God's. Humble our pride today, Lord. Draw us to yourself. You say we receive Jesus. Well, Lord, draw us near. Draw Christ near to us. Bless and honor the truth. Where our sin gets in the way, sweep it away. Where our pride gets in the way, sweep it away. Lord, we would be like Christ, not like Satan. Deliver us from ourselves. Deliver us from the temptations of the evil one. For the glory of Jesus. Save whom you will. Amen.